0: A world in which democratic self-government flourishes is a world that is more peaceful. It's a world that doesn't produce the kind of violent extremism or uncontrolled refugee flows that you see coming out of conflict-prone states or broken states, ungoverned states. Uh, And, of course, it's a more prosperous world.
1: It is the week of August 15th, and welcome to the fourth episode of our summer podcast series, Breaking Chains, Fighting the New Global Repressor. I'm Lester Munson, your host. All over the world today, we are witnessing nation states such as China, Russia, and Iran cracking down on their populations and expanding their repressive aims internationally. In our summer series, I will talk to a range of special guests about the stark reality we now face. As the rapid development of technology makes it easier for nation-state actors to commit widespread human rights abuses, what can we do to confront these abuses and protect global security and human rights? Today's episode will feature Dr. Daniel Twining president of the International Republican Institute. Previously, Dr. Twining directed the German Marshall Funds Asia Program, was a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, and served as a foreign policy advisor to the late U.S. Senator John McCain. This week, Dr. Twining discusses interests and values in the context of America's foreign policy and provides tangible examples of what democratic countries can do to counter authoritarian regimes. We will also discuss the role of the U.S. Congress in shaping foreign policy and how this arrangement is uniquely American. We are thrilled to have him this week. Dan, thanks a lot for joining us this week. Great to be here with you, Les. Thank you for doing it. So let's talk about the origins of the International Republican Institute and, you know, its kind of sister and brother organizations, National Endowment for Democracy, the National Democratic Institute. These uh, wonderful entities were born in the Reagan administration roughly 40 years ago. Can you tell us about that, uh, their beginning and how they are relevant today?
0: So- Uh, I think we look back less and we remember the Reagan administration as the White House that with George H.W. Bush kind of won the Cold War and brought peace and freedom to Europe. But in fact, when uh, Reagan and a Democratic Party led Congress established the National Endowment for Democracy, the world that IRI and NDI are part of, the world was actually a very dark and tough place. And it wasn't clear at all that the Soviet empire would collapse within a decade. It wasn't clear at all that uh, freedom and democracy and liberty would flourish Uh, In fact, if you look at, for instance, the Freedom House report from 1983, when the National Endowment and the Corn Suits were set up, uh, it was was an era of authoritarianism around the world. And so I think one uh, thing I reflect on is President Reagan's wisdom and optimism in having a vision of a different world and then creating a cross-party consensus to help go out and bring that new world about through partnership. So the National Endowment for Democracy set up in 1983 uh, with core institutes, IRI, NDI, others, to go out and help civil society strengthen and organize to help political parties learn how to compete and win uh, free and fair elections and govern, help countries learn how to conduct free and fair and peaceful elections, get women and young people involved in politics. That was the vision. Uh, We are doing that now around the world, as you say, almost 40 years later. And while there have been great gains in the world in terms of democracy over the past 40 years, of course, we've seen a lot of setbacks, including recently here, just in the past sort of five, 10 years. So the work remains uh, very important and critical because, of course, a world in which uh, democratic self government flourishes is a world that is more peaceful. It's a world that doesn't produce the kind of violent extremism or uncontrolled refugee flows that you see coming out of conflict prone states or broken states, ungoverned states. Uh, And, of course, it's a more prosperous world because we know that market democracies are the most successful in terms of economic development. So this this work is tied very directly to American national interests.
1: All right, let's let's do a little bit of a deeper dive on this whole values and interests question, because I think there's uh, a lot of folks look at the decisions our government makes in the foreign policy realm, kind of see it sometimes, you know, we have to tilt towards a certain country because we have a an energy interest there or an economic interest there. We also try to support human rights and democracy. And so we we've come up with these kind of artificial I, I'm totally giving away the, my hopeful answer here. These artificial buckets of values and interests. Is it is it really smart to divide those things up into those two categories? Or should we be thinking about uh, American foreign policy in maybe a slightly different way?
0: So thank you for the question. Uh, I think values versus interests is a false distinction. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be messianic and uh, go out and try to convert everybody everywhere to democracy. It doesn't mean that at all. The world is always going to be what it is, uh, and it's going to be a mix of systems. Uh, But in fact, there are a couple things that we know. One is that our best allies in the world are all democracies. Uh, Two is we know that unless you're uh, uh, a Saudi uh, royal, for instance, uh, your ticket to prosperity as a country is going to be based on effective and accountable institutions under the rule of law, secure property rights, responsive governance, all of those good things. So, uh, the facts suggest that often our values and our interests are often aligned. Uh, of course, where they are not, we get, we get into some tough calls, but it also is a reminder. Uh, for instance, uh, the collapse of Afghanistan, uh, a year ago, this month in August, a result really of ineffective governance in Afghanistan, a security threat that never went away. Uh, and, uh, look what happens. Al Qaeda's leadership is back in Afghanistan. Uh, desperate afghans have flowed out around uh, the region and the world uh, seeking relief uh, that country again risks becoming a hotbed of extremism so the world as i say is never going to be an ideal idyllic place but in fact these investments in helping countries self-govern uh, are central to the kind of security and prosperity uh, that we want to see flourish in the world
1: let's let's talk about uh human rights a little bit. We had uh Sam Brown back on last week and he talked with uh with great passion and intellect about the importance of freedom of religion in particular and as kind of a core human rights value that in a way kind of unlocked the possibility of of other human rights. How do you think about uh, the kind of the panoply of, of issues in the, in the rights area, democracy, uh, kind of identity issues, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, things like that. What's what's your framework for for thinking about all of those these wonderful freedoms we have here in this country? But how do you what's your framework for thinking about them globally?
0: So the first thing I think the first thing to say is that these are not sort of just American values or Western values. That IRI works in a hundred countries, and everywhere we work, uh, people want uh, individual freedom and autonomy and dignity. That there's nothing uniquely American or Western about that. We're just lucky that we've been able to enjoy. Uh, many of those rights, by and large, uh, in our own country. So there's a universal craving for uh, dignity and uh, justice and uh, individual freedom. The core human rights are laid out in the UN Charter and the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And I think increasingly over recent years, we've seen an idea that rights encompass all sorts of you know social goods provided by the state, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we need to be careful not to water down or diminish what is a core human right and you know uh the source that i look to is the the declaration of independence you know every human being has a right to life liberty uh and the pursuit of happiness so uh we know what those core rights are and uh, i'm sorry to say that technology and sophisticated forms of repression including censorship and surveillance have made it much easier for sophisticated autocrats to repress those rights around the world. So think about China, for instance. You don't see a kind of Tiananmen Square massacre anymore. Instead, you have the hidden camps in Xinjiang uh, that were revealed uh, in the media several years ago. Uh, You don't see uh, the kind of crushing of mass protests. Instead, you see something very different, which is a surveillance state Uh, judging every citizen on the basis of a social credit score and determining life opportunities on the basis of loyalty to the ruling party. Uh, So just as people everywhere crave these rights, I'm afraid uh, bad uh, governments, repressive governments have gotten better at restricting them in quite insidious ways. And so that's a that's something that we need to navigate.
1: All right. So let's pivot right from there. How does IRI as an institution Use new technologies in the in the other sense, in the positive sense, in ways to uh, organize, inform, provide transparency. Because there's, we've 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 been pretty focused, I think rightly so, on some of the darker aspects of of the new uh, connectivity. There are also opportunities there. How is how are you and IRI exploiting
0: those? There are opportunities. Uh, a lot of these technology tools, frankly, less were created in the West by our. Uh, innovative uh, digital economy. And I think what's frustrating is this argument that we've seen grow over the last decade or so that authoritarians are benefiting more from technology than uh, small D Democrats are benefiting from it. When President Bill Clinton said, you know, it's essentially going to be impossible uh, to control internet freedom. Uh, Unfortunately, he was quite wrong. Many countries like China have built these great firewalls Uh, deploy these extensive surveillance and censorship uh, toolkits. So uh, at IRI, uh, it's helpful to break some of the technology questions down into different baskets. Uh, Civil society groups need help uh, using technology to promote transparency and help hold governments accountable, Uh, for instance, around corrupt Chinese Belt and Road uh, dealings to really help shine a spotlight on those. Uh, political, uh, opposition groups need help doing secure communications so that governments do not repress, uh, or control their legitimate, peaceful, democratic dissent and activity. Um, uh, citizens need technology tools to help them organize, uh, often just to do very good things at the local level that we should not think of these tools as something pernicious. In fact, they can be very valuable. In terms of making sure that governments can be responsive to citizens and providing, uh, public services. And then, of course, in very, very tough countries, uh, think of Myanmar since the coup in Burma that happened, uh, early, uh, last year. Um, uh, democratic dissidents who are under, uh, who are at risk of their lives need secure, uh, forms of communications technology so that they can stay in touch and begin to organize peaceful forms of resistance to uh, uh, regimes that have stolen power illegitimately. We've also seen, you know, obviously the use of technology uh, in countries like Belarus uh, to push back against dictatorship. We've seen it in Ukraine. Final thought, just with the frankly very successful uh, messaging that has come out of the Ukrainian government around Russia's uh, invasion of that country, that technology has played a central role in holding that country together. I could go on and on about this subject, but I think in the democratic world, we need to think a little more strategically about these uses of technology and making sure that uh, we don't suddenly wake up in a world in which there's a giant surveillance state uh, controlling us in our legitimate political activity
1: it really does seem though that president zelensky has has really surprised i mean i know we've this, this has been noted before of course but he's really surprised the world in the last few months with his ability to just completely do an end run around whatever russian propaganda or controls there are or you know malicious cyber attacks he's he's speaking to the us congress He's speaking to the European Parliament. He's he's talking to the whole world from a bunker in Kiev. It's, it truly is an amazing phenomenon.
0: It's an amazing phenomenon. And I think the Ukrainians have been very highly successful in their strategic communications. I think the U.S. government, frankly, was quite successful in warning the world that this was coming, right? So that Russia perhaps had a harder time of it, in fact, did have a harder time of it than Vladimir Putin certainly intended, uh, because we knew uh, that the war was imminent. Um, But I will say, less. I'm sorry to say that Russian propaganda has been quite successful and effective in much of the developing world, which, as you know, most of the developing world has not fully signed on to the sanctions regime against uh, Russia. And uh, we still hear, including in Latin America, including in Africa, these weird counter narratives, polling results showing that the war is somehow America's fault or Ukraine's fault. Uh, which couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, this is a case of a country brutally attempting to annex another, the way that Nazi Germany annexed countries before you and I were born. It's quite uh, black and white and straightforward. Um, but the Russians continue to conduct information warfare. I'm sorry to say, in ways that are uh, quite successful. And this did not begin, as you know, with the invasion of Ukraine. That in fact. Uh, the Russians have been conducting forms of political and information warfare against the West for a very long time now under Vladimir Putin. And we, in our sort of legalistic way, define war as like when a tank rolls across an international boundary. Uh, but in fact, uh, this is part of this new technology challenge from authoritarians that China, too, as uh, Russia does, uses these forms of hybrid uh, uh, conflict uh, against us in the information space.
1: So do you, this is, uh, I'm going a little bit off topic here, but do you do you think the U.S. government is prepared for exactly this kind of challenge in the developing world, in the global South, in these countries, in the kind of the, the old non-aligned group of countries from the Cold War? Are, we were set up, uh, a lot of our institutions were set up either to, in anticipation of the Cold War or because of the Cold War, it's a, it's a different scenario now, not totally different, but different enough Are we prepared in the US government for this challenge to go to a place like like Kenya or Sri Lanka or these island states in the Pacific and help them in a way that isn't dictating to them, that isn't talking down to them, that isn't recolonializing them, recolonizing them, in a way that, that helps them get to the best place and helps our values and interests at the same time? Are we set up to be successful that
0: way? I don't, I don't think we are. I mean, I think the enterprise you're suggesting is very timely and important and strategic. And we did do this somewhat during the Cold War with the U.S. Information Agency. And we really, you know, Voice of America, that there were institutions and structures in place to really tell a story to the world. Um, we're not in the business of doing propaganda, unlike the Russians and the Chinese. But a lot of those uh, Cold War era information institutions were dismantled on the basis that we didn't need need them anymore. And they were also dismantled on the basis that a free and independent media uh, could flourish and help people in all of these countries get objective news. One thing I've been very struck by just watching this space over the last five to 10 years is how uh, the Chinese and the Russians actually have taken on free media very directly in Africa, the Chinese have bought up a lot of media houses so that if you're reading that newspaper in Kenya, it might contain no negative news on China because the Chinese have a financial holding of the parent company of that newspaper or magazine. This is happening across uh, Africa. And so I think we need to be more deliberate and strategic in thinking about how in the internet age, it doesn't need to be shortwave radio broadcasts like in the Cold War, but how can we help citizens around the world uh, secure objective sources of information? Because governments everywhere are trying to curate information uh, in ways uh that uh, often lean towards uh, authoritarianism. So I feel like this is an urgent and important uh, strategic issue for us to focus on in the United States, for sure. And by the way, it's also a great way to help people be self-governing around the world and achieve true self-determination. Because uh, if a foreign country like China comes in and buys up a media house in a country like Ghana, where I'm a citizen, for instance, and I'm trying to read objective news about China and not finding any, it's the Chinese who are undercutting my country's sovereignty. Uh, by essentially eliminating my freedom of information access. So I do think freedom of information uh, is a vital uh, issue for us as we think about this era ahead uh, and this authoritarian challenge we confront.
1: So one of, one of the things President Biden did uh, during the campaign, I believe he promised a summit of democracies, uh, as kind of a, as seemingly as kind of a way to distinguish himself from, from the last administration, which, uh, you know, to to be... Uh, a little bit frank about it, wasn't, wasn't always a great tribune of democracy and, those, and human rights and those kinds of values at every single opportunity. There were some where the last administration did okay, but not kind of like where we had been before. Joe Biden campaigned on let's, let's return to promoting values, stronger ties with our allies, that kind of thing. He had the summit of democracies at the end of last year. What, what are your thoughts about that, that promise and the execution of that promise?
0: So, of course, America should lead in supporting democratic development around the world. I think that's a very noble and ambitious and, frankly, practical goal. Again, just given that we know that good outcomes come from the security and prosperity produced by functioning and effective democratic institutions. Uh, we need more local ownership. It can't simply be American-driven we need i think a lot more bottom up activism it's fine to have top down government heads of state summitry but in fact 90% of the work of democracy is uh non executive branch institutions strong civil society free media independent courts uh active citizen participation in political life and elections these are all things that governments cannot mandate or provide so uh really feeding that bottom up energy. You know, the the summit for democracy had a civil society component, which was probably the strongest part of it, uh, because you had a sort of stronger democratic discourse among these civil society uh, actors from many countries. So I think it's a work in progress. It's to be determined. But there have been some great offshoots. Uh, the, The terrific Venezuelan dissident Leopoldo Lopez is hosting a World Liberty Congress in Vilnius in November, bringing together democratic activists from every region of the world, uh, you know, from Hong Kong, from Burma, from Africa, from the Middle East, from South America, uh, these kind of efforts that I think perhaps have spun off the summit for democracy may in the long run be more fruitful uh, because it's the people of these countries that need to really help build democratic space and produce democratic outcomes. America can support that. We're never going to be able to do it by ourselves.
1: Tell us about your tenure at IRI. You've been there for several years now. You've gotten the organization uh, pretty much through the COVID uh, crisis. Uh, we've, we've seen the passing of our, our uh, giant uh, political figure, uh, statesman John McCain, uh, who was who really played a key role in IRI for many years? What's what are what are the lessons you've learned? What are the things you proud you're proud of during your your tenure here running IRI?
0: Thank you, Senator McCain was chairman of IRI for 25 years and really helped build it into what it is. So I appreciate your mentioning his role and legacy, which lives on uh, uh, very directly uh, here. Uh, I will say, having worked for him, Les, you worked for some wonderful members of Congress. Uh, He always understood, going back to your values interest question, that our values reinforce our interests and vice versa, and that, uh, you know, frankly, it is un-American of us when we totally subjugate uh, a basic set of democratic principles to more transactional concerns that that may be sometimes necessary in the short term, but it usually is not the right approach in the long term. Uh, Senator McCain, uh, just like my board now, chaired by Senator Dan Sullivan, sees this IRI work as very pragmatic, that we're really, it's really foundational building block work to strengthen democratic partnerships so that people around the world can build effective and well-functioning and peaceful, uh, and prosperous societies. Uh, that itself is a contribution to, uh, not only the global good, but to American national interests in a world that has less conflict, uh, less state collapse, et cetera, et cetera, less violent extremism. IRI has grown. It grew during the Trump years, Less, You'll be uh, maybe surprised to hear because Republicans and Democrats in Congress very strongly invested in the National Endowment for Democracy and the parts of the foreign assistance budget, which remain very modest, but which support democracy rights and governance. Uh, And, you know, America is a generous provider of foreign assistance. It's still a tiny, tiny fraction of the government budget, as you know. Um, But these investments in helping build sound and effective institutions abroad pay a lot of other returns because we spend a lot of money in foreign assistance on, for instance, humanitarian relief. Guess what? Strong democracies don't need humanitarian relief when a disaster strikes. We spend a lot of uh, U.S. foreign assistance funds on supporting refugees who have been displaced by conflict uh, or other uh, push factors. And guess what? Strong democracies don't produce the kind of refugees who need permanent support because they've had to flee their countries. So uh we're proud of the work we have done with people around the world. Most of the people who work at IRI are not American. Most of the people who work for IRI in Ukraine are Ukrainian, in Argentina are Argentine, etc. And so it's a reminder that people want these values for themselves and their own countries, and they understand their special responsibility to help uh, nurture democracy in their own countries. So, and back to, you know, the Ronald Reagan vision that you outlined at the beginning, President Reagan understood this, that the truest form of self-determination is to empower people to govern themselves. The truest form of cultural imperialism, as he put it, was to argue that people were not culturally sophisticated enough to enjoy democracy.
1: I think there's a, this is a terrific answer, by the way. I think there's a, um, there's a belief out there in the land, including in uh, some of our favorite ivory towers, that American foreign policy uh, springs forth from the brains of American presidents and then is manifest in the world, as if there are no other part of the process. You talked about Congress funding IRI and and similar organizations during the Trump administration. Can can you wax eloquently on the role of Congress in the making of American foreign policy and how that impacts the important work that IRI does?
0: So we can't have 435 commanders in chief, 535. I acknowledge that, uh, which is the total number of elected members in the House and Senate. Uh, But Congress plays a unique and special role in American foreign policy that I think is not true, really, in any other country. And a lot of our friends and allies in the world have trouble understanding this because they think anything the president of the United States says uh, he can do in foreign policy. He does have inordinate power as commander in chief. But in fact, Congress plays a very special shaping role, both in funding foreign assistance, funding national defense, national security, uh, but also in shaping policy uh, very directly. I mean, you know, you're more apt to answer it than I am as former uh, committee staff director. But um, thinking, for instance, about the Iran nuclear deal uh, to take something that I suspect you know a lot more about than I do. Um, President Obama never submitted that as a treaty uh, to the United States Senate as required under the Constitution of the United States because he knew that he could not get the requisite supermajority of senators to endorse the U.S.-Iran JCPOA. So that agreement subsequently was canceled by President Trump uh, because there was not a cross-party basis of support for it and continues to teeter. And the Iranians, of course, have continued to break out and proliferate and uh, advance their nuclear weapons arsenal. So uh, that's a reminder of the fact, uh, to take a maybe a better, uh, more recent example, the United States Senate voted uh, just last week uh, 95 to 1 to uh, support the accession of Finland and Sweden to the NATO alliance. I worked on NATO enlargement when I was on the Hill a long time ago, as I suspected you. Uh, this is a great thing. NATO is a living, breathing uh, alliance that continues to adapt and evolve. Congress has played a very special role in making sure that it would continue to help support a Europe whole free and at peace. Finally, I would just give the uh, example of Taiwan, which uh, the Speaker of the U.S. House recently visited Taiwan. The uh, ruling party in China uh, got very upset about this. Uh, U.S.-China relations uh, do continue to be guided by uh, some of the understandings reached a long time ago uh, around the One China Principle. But they also are guided uh, very directly by the Taiwan Relations Act that Congress uh, enacted uh, when the U.S. normalized relations with Beijing to make sure that the United States and Taiwan would continue to enjoy a healthy and strong partnership. And so the Speaker of the U.S. House uh, visiting Taiwan was very much in keeping with the spirit of the Taiwan Relations Act. And I think the Biden team kept trying to explain this to the Chinese Communist Party leadership. In Beijing, that uh, the U.S. has its own understandings with Taiwan that are separate from uh, diplomatic deals made with uh, Beijing, and that. The health and vigor of Taiwanese democracy, I think, is a direct function of the congressional leadership role in making sure that the United States continues to support uh, peace in the Taiwan Straits and the development of a healthy Taiwanese democracy.
1: Let's, uh, let's spend the, the last few minutes on the podcast kind of looking forward, if, if that's okay with you, Dan, and, and tell us your thoughts about uh, how specifically the U.S. government, Congress, IRI, all of these uh, institutions and interested parties can uh, affect change in the world going forward. We certainly have our own disagreements here at home. A lot of that's pretty healthy. Hopefully most of it is healthy. Uh, but I'm looking forward at the challenges we see in with with coming from the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, uh, from other author- you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, other authoritarian instincts around the world, the skepticism we're seeing, in the developing world, about about our views of these things, what's the best way forward uh, in terms of policies, institutions, programs that can really make a difference uh, for American foreign It's policy?
0: a great question. One is, I think we need to think very smartly about our toolkit. That 99% of the time, I'm all in favor of a strong national defense and increasing the defense budget, but 99% of the time, the solution is not going to be military to threats or opportunities for the United States and our interests out in the world. So let's think about and invest smartly in the entire toolkit, which includes uh, information, uh, which includes development assistance, which includes support for democracy. We like to talk about the four Ds of American leadership, defense, diplomacy, development, and democracy, support for democratic uh, development. Uh, let's remind ourselves that We have a very vigorous private sector in the United States. We remain the world's leading economy. We should make it easier for American companies to do business in the world, obviously to have secure supply chains and all of these good things. Uh, But also, let's just be careful. Let's not uh, weaken ourselves through protectionism, through policies of insularity that cut us off from the 95% of consumers who don't live in the United States. Uh, let's remind ourselves that our economic health and leadership are just as important as our military strength in shaping a world that continues to remain safe for the American way of life. And let's work, uh, in an era, it's very easy to say this, hard to do it, but, uh, partisanship has just been become so acute, even compared to the time you and I, uh, first started work on the Hill. Um, let's try to sort of reel in the partisanship as it, as it, relates to the wider world and some of these core issues that you raise around china around russia uh, you know in the 40s and 50s uh, of the last century american statesmen republican and democratic worked together to build a cold war consensus that basically isolated the extremes on the right and left of both major parties so that you essentially you had 70 75 u.s senate votes for big endeavors that america needed to undertake in the world Uh, Let's try to get back to forging a bipartisan consensus around uh, making sure that uh, the Chinese Communist Party and its values do not come to dominate the international order, Uh, a bipartisan consensus which has held around helping nations protect themselves from naked aggression as the U.S. Congress and President Biden have very strongly supported uh, Ukraine in defending itself from Russian aggression. Uh, let's try to do a little more of that and let's finally let's let's invest in our strategic competitiveness, which does get into infrastructure and education and health. That doesn't mean the government should fund everything, but it is to say that one reason we won the Cold War uh, was because we outcompeted the Soviet Union. We actually had a better system. And let's remind ourselves that ours is a better system relative to these one-party states that have very different visions, world order, more authoritarian visions. And let's invest in our kind of strength and competitiveness at home so that we can continue to uh, properly protect and pursue our interests abroad.
1: Uh, Dan, that was fantastic. Uh, thank you very much for being with us on Fault Lines.
0: Thanks, Les. It's great to be with you. It's easy to say some of this stuff and hard to do it, but I do think, you know, we need a new generation of Americans to step up and help shape this next era. Uh, it's a very complicated world, but it's also very
1: interesting and full of opportunities if we're smart about it. So thank you for having uh, me. I you know, just one one quick thought. You know, uh, I know it's kind of fashionable for boomers and maybe people in our generation to condemn the, the young people today. But they're the ones who were out there in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, fighting on the front lines. They made real sacrifices for their country, put their lives at risk. Uh, and I actually, for one, have a huge amount of faith in the young people in this country. They're gras- they're grappling with some great public policy challenges. Uh, here at home, I have a lot of faith that they're going to be able to do the right thing when it comes to international affairs also.
0: I do too. I think, you know, my thought on this is to make sure that everybody understands that these issues are connected, that uh, yes, you know, the U.S. has democratic deficits. We've been working on strength building our democracy for 246 years. We obviously still have work to do, but uh, we continue to have a system uh, where citizens can demand change and hold politicians accountable. And whatever your issue is as a young person, it may be climate change, it may be gay rights, uh, maybe social justice, whatever it is, racial equity, um, you know, you're going to have no voice to propound change in an autocracy. You and your friends are not going to be able to organize to hold politicians accountable and really push them around those priorities. Uh, you know, in a one party state, you all get sent to prison for dissenting or expressing alternative views. So let's let's really recognize and cherish what we have in this country. And then let's find wages to build bridges, to build bridges, because you can't do it without some consensus, right? To build bridges to get some practical things done.
1: Amen. As Sam Brown back would say. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason Matsek. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Gabriella Hensinger and Gabriel Otis for research and production assistance. Join us next time as we continue through the summer to shed greater light on the new means of repression, highlighting aggressive expansionist policies that violate the rights of citizens across the globe and propose serious solutions the U.S. can take to secure and promote democratic values.